Hello and welcome to Plugged In Politics. I'm your host, Jace Wilkie, and I hope you all had an awesome 4th of July. As per tradition, I hope it was filled with hot dogs and as much gunpowder and freedom as the American dollar can buy. Today, we're going to be covering the highlights of the Supreme Court season. So, June is an interesting month in the political world as the Supreme Court releases its rulings for that given year. Now, on the docket for this summer, we have some pretty intense issues ranging from discrimination to federal election rules. But let's be clear here, guys. Uh, following the rulings of Dobbs v. Jackson and Kennedy v. Bremerton School District in 2022, we're not really working with a judicially honest court. So, to set the record straight, heading into this ruling season, I expected absolute horrible outcomes. So how did it turn out? Well, that's the question for all three segments for today's show. So we're going to start things off with the Supreme Court case on affirmative action, and then follow that up with the Moore v. Harper independent state legislator theory case, and then end the show on the 303 Creative LLC versus Ellenist discrimination case. Make sure to follow the show on Spotify and Apple Podcasts so you don't miss a single upload, and feel free to follow the show on Twitter and Instagram to stay plugged in on any updates and new stories. Also, the show is now on YouTube. I split the show up into segments and then upload them there. I gotta say, the love received on the Bobert and MTG video was amazing, so please make sure to go check that out and give it a watch. Also, you know, toss me a bone and subscribe, I really need it. Now, with that out of the way, sit back, grab some hot dogs, and watch the fireworks fly. Okay, so first up on the docket, we have the Supreme Court striking down affirmative action, the college admissions practice of accounting for race-based admissions. So out of nature, the court decided by a majority of six to three that Harvard University and the Public University of North Carolina and Chapel Hill violated the Equal Protection Clause of the U.S. Constitution's 14th Amendment by considering race alongside other factors such as grades and test scores in their admissions policies. The decision deprives universities of a crucial tool in the ongoing struggle to establish more diverse and more equitable educational environments. Now, race-conscious policies, also known as affirmative action, were initially established to redress generations of harm that racism had caused to black people in the United States. You know, they were conceived in the years after Brown v. Board of Education, Topeka, Kansas, uh, the landmark 1954 Supreme Court ruling to desegregate schools. Some white majority communities fought vehemently to maintain segregation. Uh, affirmative action was an acknowledgement that with robust efforts to diversify workplaces and student bodies, segregation, although no longer enshrined in law, would effectively continue by default through existing disparities in educational and professional achievement. So, away from the article, my thoughts on this. I understand that there is a mixed understanding of race-based admission policies, but it's also important to account for the fact that although social and voting policies have progressed, there are numerous factors that hold, you know, underserved communities of color. Generations of people who are the descendants of slaves and populations that were redlined to hell and back? Yeah, yeah, no shit, it's not hard to imagine that people face certain factors that, you know, white and legacy populations simply don't face. To be fair, I think that affirmative action is a clumsy but harmless attempt to make sure that student bodies are representative of the population. However, this has led to some glaring issues, particularly in you know, Northeast and Pacific universities such as Harvard and UCLA. Um, Asian applicants, for example, that apply to these universities tend to come from higher socioeconomic backgrounds, so they end up having a lower chance of being accepted. That was one of the main issue points that stirred up this case. But let's also not kid ourselves here. A policy on colorblindness, as altruistic as it may sound, ends up having negative outcomes. Uh, 
For example, literacy laws and grandfather clauses were used to bar former slaves from voting following the Civil War. You know, these laws had no written statements directly tied to race. However, in practice, they prevented populations that were unable to read from voting, which, at the time, was predominantly made up of former slaves. Now, to account for white rural populations that were literate, grandfather clauses were meant to permit people to vote who had grandfathers that were literate. In fact, Justice Sotomayor uh, touched on this topic in her dissenting opinion, affirming the Equal Protection Clause while still dissenting on the overall ruling, saying that the previous cases have, quote, concluded that this guarantee can be enforced through race-conscious means in a society that is not and never has been colorblind, end quote. I also think it's important to look at just how, quote-unquote, important race really is in the emissions process. In fact, according to Ballotpedia, it turns out that only 20% of universities in the United States utilize race-based admission policies. And this is largely made up of, you know, elite universities such as Ivy Leagues. These make up a, a relatively small portion of college admissions in the United States. And it really isn't going to affect the broader population. And l let's be clear, a guy like me, I'm not going to get into an Ivy League. Uh, it, it really doesn't affect normal average Joes, to be honest. I think generally this is not a great ruling overall, largely because it will deprive genuine talent from underserved areas from opportunities in elite higher education. Like, you know, let's let's think of a hypothetical situation here. Like, if it's between a legacy Harvard kid with a 4.0 GPA in Beacon Hill, Boston, versus a kid with the same GPA and accomplishments from, say, a lower-income neighborhood, I'm likely going to go for the latter. The legacy kid isn't missing out on anything. Let's, let's not delude ourselves here. They could go anywhere. The world is practically already in their hands. They won the sperm lottery. Look, all this to say... I don't know what to say, honestly. <laughs> this feels like a rather lame attempt to dismiss a relatively harmless accommodation that ensures that higher education is somewhat available to all demographics of the country, uh, even as, you know, oftentimes misplaced or sometimes clumsy as it can be. I, I can't in any world really defend the, the decision to strike it down. It's just not ethical. Now, it'll be interesting to see what happens to elite universities and if any political interaction takes place, but I doubt it, though. It was a quick pump-and-dump scheme for the right. You know, they're going to get their, uh, you know, their, their, their brownie points amongst their base out in the, you know, rural areas of the United States where they're going to win their districts anyway, but it, it basically just locks them up. It, it's a quick win. You know, it's a one-night stand win, gets them a few headlines for about a month, and honestly, we're probably not going to see much of this in the future uh, unless, you know, the traction that I've heard about online and through some articles about trying to target legacy admissions policies. That would be an interesting conversation. And if the Supreme Court does not strike down legacy policies, this is going to be a complete hypocritical farce. I mean, just straight up. But we're going to have to wait to see. And honestly... I would not lose any sleep if we tear away that, you know, that backdoor, you know, right of birth policy for these kids. I'm not going to lie. It, it, it kind of makes me sick sometimes. When I was in third grade, I remember a trick that Mrs. Priest taught me. I don't know how assignments and grades work now, but when I was in primary school, the way that our parents learned about our grades was we'd bring our paper assignments home in our folders. 
Now, the big days were always Fridays because the teachers would, you know, bring us a big stack of, you know, accumulated grades. And now Miss Priest taught me how to present your grades in the best way possible. You see, you sandwich your grades in your folder. You know, say that you have three papers, two good grades, one bad. You put the bad grade in the middle and the good ones are on the outside. That golden rule has guided me in life to this day. If I have, you know, three pieces of information, I always sandwich the worst one in the middle and the good ones on the outside. You know, you wrap it on the good end and you wrap it up in the end. But I have to break this golden rule on this podcast production today because this is just cursed. For this episode, I had three segments about Supreme Court cases, and out of my options, I only had one good ruling. So, here in the middle of the segment is the one positive thing that happened in the Supreme Court this month. Out of NBC last Tuesday, the Supreme Court rejected the independent state legislator theory in a 6-3 opinion for the court case. More v. Harper. Heading into the Supreme Court term, which started in October, voting rights proponents feared more v. Harper, and, you know, North Carolina Republicans brought the case after the state Supreme Court struck down their partisan gerrymandered congressional map. Uh, They cited the fringe independent state legislature theory, which in its most extreme form claims that the Constitution's election clause gives state legislatures unfettered control over federal elections. Basically, there's a lot of regulations that go into federal elections. You know, this comes from identification laws, registration eligibility, and most importantly, redistricting. Essentially, legislators can draft new congressional districts in their given state, you know, the process of gerrymandering. Uh, For each district, there is a representative in Congress, and these districts can be a positive or negative depending on how populations are split up. Uh, For example, if a community is made up of largely, say, African-American Democratic voters, and it's not far away from two areas that vote heavily Republican, the best way to redistrict it, if you are a Republican, is to split that community and have them absorbed into the two respective Republican districts. In one fell swoop, you've just invalidated an entire group's vote and limited your opposition's reach in national politics. The only limit on these new district maps is that they need to be approved by state courts before they are even confirmed and go into effect. The only limit on these new district maps is that they need to be approved by state courts before they are confirmed and go into effect. Additional efforts to tighten election regulations could be overturned through ballot initiatives and potentially from state governors. Now, interstage right, the independent state legislature theory. Now, ISL is a reading of the Constitution that has been pushed in recent years to give state legislators uh, wide authority to gerrymander electoral maps and pass voter suppression laws. Uh, Proponents of this theory insist that the state legislatures have near absolute power to regulate federal elections. Uh, In practice, this means that any law that a state legislature passes related to federal elections could not be stopped by state courts. So if this theory was cemented as precedent, then states with political majorities would never become swing states again. Ohio? Not. That's a lock. It It would stay Republican forever. California? I mean, there's little hope of that ever turning red. But there's still a hope. There's still a possibility. Under ISL, it it would never happen. It would stay blue until eternity. And not to mention, following the 2020 election fiasco, state legislatures would have had the ability to make overhauled attempts to swing election codes in their favor. It would be incredibly destructive and and regressive to any attempt at voting availability. And this extends further than redistricting. Uh, For example, with voter suppression laws on the upswing in states like Georgia and Mississippi, courts would be unable to check the law's legality. 
Uh, for example, Georgia submitted a law that would ban voting on Sundays, a, a law that was criticized for targeting communities of color in the state as during the week leading up to voting day, churches would gather their congregations to early voting centers. And they would do this because these communities often don't have a lot of free time to go vote in the middle of the week. Uh, these communities tend to have higher rates of people that work multiple jobs uh, during the day, have limited transportation, and, and a myriad of other factors that make it difficult to actually arrive to the ballot during the weekday. But without any core oversight, laws like this would pass with absolutely no pushback. So the facts of the case are this. Uh, North Carolina's GOP-controlled legislature uh, drew congressional maps that maximize the number of Republican seats that they can get. The state Supreme Court, which was majority Democrat at the time, rejected the partisan gerrymandering and went on to cite that it violated North Carolina's constitutional guarantee to free and fair elections. The North Carolina legislators then turned to the Supreme Court, stating that the North Carolina Supreme Court had violated the U.S. Constitution, which under their theory endowed the legislature with supposed powers to control congressional elections. And to be honest, given this court's track record, I'm genuinely surprised by the result. Considering that the court up to this point has proved to be led by an activist majority, I was fully expecting it to be a 6-3 result in the opposite direction. Of the court justices, it is not surprising that the three liberals voted to reject the case, but conservative holdouts like Coney Barrett, Kavanaugh, and Chief Justice Roberts voted to reject the theory. Now, unsurprisingly, Justices Clarence Thomas, Samuel Alito, and Neil Gorsuch voted to affirm the theory. And a quick rundown for those of you who do not know who these guys are. They're straight-up nutjobs. Uh, Justice Thomas wrote the affirming opinion for Dobbs v. Jackson, you know, the case that overturned Roe, which stated cases that fell under the 14th Amendment protection should be completely reviewed. Uh, just for the record to be set here, uh, cases, like, like landmark cases that fall under the 14th Amendment, Obergefell v. Hodges, uh, you know, the Supreme Court ruling that affirmed the right for gay couples to marry, Lawrence v. Texas, the law that prevents states from making sodomy laws, and Griswold v. Connecticut, the Supreme Court ruling that basically ensures that states cannot limit anyone's right to contraception. But he did make sure to leave out Loving v. Virginia since it protected interracial marriage, seeing that he's related to a white woman. Real, real funny that, you know, he, he made sure to leave that one out. Then we have my favorite example, Samuel Alito. Alito is a ballsy son of a bitch. In his draft concurring opinion of Dobbs v. Jackson, he cited, and I'm not kidding here, he cited Matthew Hale. Uh, now, Matthew Hale is a 17th century jurist who literally invented the husband exemption of marital rape. Need I say more? Oh, and, and before I forget to mention it, Hale also presided over one of the most famous witch trials in England's history, which resulted in the hanging of two women. And I think we can all agree that witches don't exist. So, yeah, pretty dumb, pretty dumb guy. So now that the current state of the Supreme Court is established, what does the theory's rejection mean? Well, honestly, nothing really changes. You know, we're back to the constitutional status quo that prevents state legislatures from completely ruling out over election regulations, but why does this genuine victory feel so shallow? I'm not sure, to be honest. I guess I was just expecting judicial calamity, but hey, at least we avoided the worst possible timeline.
Alright, so wrapping up the show today, out of Reuters, the U.S. Supreme Court's conservative majority on Friday ruled 6-3, unsurprisingly, that the constitutional right to free speech allows certain businesses to refuse to provide services for same-sex weddings. Denver-area web designer Lori Smith, who cited her Christian beliefs against gay marriage in challenging a Colorado anti-discrimination law. The justices overturned a lower court's ruling that had rejected Smith's bid for an exemption from a Colorado law that prohibits discrimination based on sexual orientation and other factors. Now, 303 Creative sells custom web designs, but Smith opposed providing her services for same-sex weddings. Uh, Conservative Justice Neil Gorsuch wrote in the ruling that Colorado's law would force Smith to create speech that she does not believe, which would be in violation of the U.S. Constitution's First Amendment, saying, quote, Were the rule otherwise, the better the artist, the finer the writer, the more unique his talent, the more easily his voice could be conscripted to disseminate the government's preferred messages. That would not respect the First Amendment. More nearly, it would spell its demise, end quote. The court's three liberal justices dissented. Uh, Justice Sotomayor wrote, quote, Today the court, for the first time in its history, grants a business open to the public a constitutional right to refuse to serve members of a protected class, end quote. So, what the hell? All I can think of when I sit back on this is, yeah, no, the screaming libs from 2018 and 2019 were right. Uh, the GOP will take every opportunity they can to reverse the progress of the gay marriage ruling in 2015. I mean, departing from the current case for a second, they flat out admitted it. In Clarence Thomas's ruling opinion after overturning Roe v. Wade, like I mentioned in the last segment, he cited that previous cases ruled off the basis of the 14th Amendment would need to be, quote, reevaluated. These included verbatim Lawrence v. Texas and Obergefell v. Hodges. Uh, for, for context, you know, these previous cases prevent state and federal governments from creating limitations surrounding sodomy and gay marriage. But back to the case, however, let's dive into the plaintiff for a minute. So, Lori Smith. God, why is, why is this the most suburban name imaginable? Jesus. Anyway, so Lori Smith is an evangelical Christian who said she believes marriage is only between a man and a woman. You know, she preemptively sued Colorado's Civil Rights Commission and other state officials in 2016 because she said she feared being punished for refusing to serve gay weddings under Colorado's public accommodations law. So she sued to refuse service to a particular group of people. Totally not comparable to anything else in history. Not, not at all, nah. So she preemptively sued based off of a hypothetical. And yes, this is a basically a hypothetical. And we're going to touch on that in a second. But, you know, there, there's a twist in the story later. You won't even guess what it is. <laughs> so if she's suing against public accommodations law, let's figure out what it is in the first place. So, public accommodation laws uh, exist in many states, banning discrimination in areas such as housing, hotels, retail, restaurants, and educational institutions. Colorado's current anti-discrimination law, you know, bars public businesses from denying goods or services to people based on race, gender, sexual orientation, religion, and other characteristics. Basically, it's the line that we all learned in elementary school, you know, you don't discriminate your services because of someone's immutable characteristics. You know, for example, these laws prevent businesses from refusing services to black people, uh, women, or people who believe in a different religion. So, how does this case even touch anything revolving around freedom of religion in the First Amendment? By interpreting the service of designing a website as art, 
As stated earlier, the conservative Supreme Court justices have essentially deemed any of Mrs. Smith's business as an intrinsic act of free speech. However, the reach of this case can span far further than just that. You know, if it inflicts on free speech, would it still be allowed under the law to refuse designing a website for an interracial couple? Uh, what about someone who's making, uh, you know, a really damn good uh, creme brulee, right? Cooking is an art. You know, you express yourself in every little thing you do. Whatever your craft may be, you could c technically consider that art, right? Let's say someone is religiously opposed to two people from different races getting married. Under this ruling, that person should be allowed to discriminate their services to that couple. Even further, I'd argue that based on this ruling, you could deny services to basically anybody for any immutable characteristic. Hate disabled people? Cool, you don't have to serve them. Hate women? Make up a religion that specifically hates them. Don't want to serve Christians? This law should do the trick. So, full stop, no question about it, this is just a discriminatory ruling. It's meant to empower you know, businesses and bigots to refuse their services to marginalized communities. And honestly, it opens a precedent that potentially regresses back and discriminates against others. What's next? People of color to satiate racists? Political affiliation? Gender? I know it may seem like I'm listing these out for dramatic effect, but I genuinely don't know. The Supreme Court, as I mentioned earlier, has just completely gone off the rails regarding precedent, evidence, and justiciable injury. We saw that with Kennedy versus Bremerton High School when the football coach quit his job because the school district informed him to stop asking students to engage in a public prayer. He then continued to do the prayer and invited news agencies and state legislatures to witness it. In every instance of this case, Kennedy was making public displays of religious worship in a federally funded public institution. Under the guise of the Establishment Clause, he had no legitimate case. But yet, in 2022, the Supreme Court ruled that the school district had violated his private worship. Yeah, real, real private stuff out there on the 50-yard line, inviting news reporters and state legislators and requesting your players to join you. Anyway, the current Supreme Court, conservative majority, has a precedent of taking incomplete or factually unsound cases and misinterpreting them to get the results that they want. And we have all of this going on while we have controversy surrounding Clarence Thomas potentially receiving money and trips from billionaires during his time as a justice. But, and this is the twist, guys, in light of new information, this may be the most dishonest and disgusting lawsuit I've seen in years. So out of CNN, Lori Smith had claimed in court filings that a man had inquired about her services for a same-sex wedding. Now, the man in court records was identified as Stewart, and in the court filings, he supposedly had requested graphic designs for invitations and other materials for a wedding with his fiance Mike. However... After, you know, CNN picked up the contact information within the public court filings, they went out to contact Stewart, and Stewart said that he did not submit a request to the company 303 Creative and is happily married to a woman of 15 years. Jesus Christ! So in one of the chief instances that Lori Smith and 303 Creative hinged their case on, likely didn't happen? And this isn't a new case or anything. This case has been in the courts for six years. In the six years that this case has been around, no one, and I mean no one, thought to check through the contact information and confirm that these requests and instances were legit? What a dumbass situation, man. The Supreme Court got duped, pure and simple. So not only is this a, you know, a completely destructive ruling, 
but is based off of a potential lie and ultimately a hypothetical without any justiciable injury. It was entirely preemptive. And all for what? To discriminate against gay people because you don't want to make a website or design an invitation? Oh, would that hurt your feelings? Sorry guys, I just don't understand this man. I don't speak snowflake. God. We're in a sad state of affairs, man. I... The edge of apathy nears me closer and closer with every passing day. And... Yeah, it makes good content, but holy shit, it's hard to it's hard to sleep at night sometimes, dude. All right, you guys, that's the end of the show. I know it was a bit of a downer for the most part today, but I, I really want to thank you guys for, you know, as always, tuning in for the show. It really means a lot to me. Uh, make sure to go on ahead and support the show on Twitter. Uh, make sure to go on ahead and, you know, if you're listening to this on Spotify or Apple Podcasts, please make sure to follow the podcast so you can stay up to date on all my uploads. And of course, I got to do some plugs for YouTube. Go to the YouTube channel and watch the segments. Go on ahead and leave a subscription. Click that bell icon to get notifications. And, you know, you're just going to stay up to date with this sad voice. All right. But I'm not going to hold you guys here any longer. Thank you all, as always. And I'll see you in the next one. <laughs>